0: All right, uh, turn to Acts chapter 28. This is our final week in the book of Acts. I'll catch you up on what has led us here in the story so you know what is going on. Most immediately, you need to know that there was a shipwreck and Paul fell in the water along with everybody else. who received us entertained us hospitably for 3 days it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery and Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him healed him and when this had taken place the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured they also honored us greatly and when we were about to set sail they put on board whatever we needed after 3 months we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And So we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they'd gathered, he said to them, "'Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they'd examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case.'" But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers among here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these, your scriptures. And God, we pray that our hearts would be bowed before them and that we would submit to your authority. Father, I pray that you would help me to speak only the words here and not my own. I need your Holy Spirit to help me, to help us all, that our hearts may be stirred in their affections for Jesus, that we might be conformed to his image, to the glory of his name. Amen. Here we are at the end of the book of Acts, um, and we've jumped ahead quite a bit here, but we've talked last week about how Paul is in this Judicial chain. He's on his way to Rome, and on the way to Rome, he encounters shipwreck. He tells the people what's going to happen. There's the opportunity for them to escape, and Paul refuses to escape. He knows that if he escapes, the guards will be condemned, and he assures them nobody's going to try to escape. So the ship stays together. They swim to this island, Malta, and this is what happens. And this is how the book of Acts ends. The book of Acts begins with this uh, declaration by Jesus that they ought to wait in Jerusalem, that they would receive the Spirit in power, that they would go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the book ends here, in some ways, at the ends of the earth, in Rome. Rome is the seat of power of the powers that have killed Jesus that will persecute the church into the heart of the empire that in many ways seems to fill to the edges of the map Paul is finally here and he ends in this sort of cliffhanger it it's Sort of a puzzling ending for a lot of people. Some people wonder, did Luke intend to write like part three? There's the gospel of Luke and Acts, and is there like a missing third part or something like that? Because it just feels like something is waiting. And I don't don't think that's what happened. I think that feeling that you and I feel, the sort of lean in, like what then, sort of feeling is something that was purposeful. It's left that way on purpose. The first thing that we need to see and to reckon with in this final set of stories from Luke is that Luke is, is very clear that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, costs something. You can't read the book of Acts and not understand that what is being offered to people Is not a ticket to Easy Street. And in fact, it is something that costs you even your very life. Luke does not shy away from telling us the stories of the martyrdom of those who are closest to Jesus. It would be pretty hard to pay attention to the book of Acts and come away with some sort of prosperity theology that if you follow Jesus close enough, then God will bless you and make you comfortable and happy. These are the people that follow Jesus closest and and maybe most faithfully. They're the ones that end up on the rack or with their head off their shoulders or tortured or nearing death if they themselves don't die. Something is required of all people who follow Jesus. And this is something that is especially necessary for us to hear in a very comfortable post-Christian West. Because many of us come to a place like this with no cost whatsoever. In fact, it is so much a part of our weakness that many of us only end up in this place on Sundays because it's habit. We don't even particularly want to be here, but it's just what we're supposed to do. It's what we habitually do, and we come. And listen, doing things by habit as you follow God is not a bad thing. The transformation of your habits is an indication that God is at work in you by His Spirit to transform who you are. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we can sort of put our life on rails like a train and just send it through the week without any kind of hiccups and ending up here is just kind of the train coasting on its tracks. It is easy to forget that following Jesus is meant to cost you something and it's it's easy to understand why it should cost you something. Because the claims that Jesus makes about himself and on your life are at odds with the way that the world works. Or they should be. Jesus makes people uncomfortable all the time in the Gospels. Rarely does anybody get to come to Jesus and walk away undisturbed. People leave their professions. People leave signs of respectability. People leave their comforts to follow Jesus. And when Jesus can be assimilated into a way of life so that following him leverages no cost on who you are, then you ought to sit up and take notice and ask some pointed questions. Why does Jesus, why does his voice fade so easily into the background of my comfortable middle class American life? Why were people so troubled in the Gospels? And I am not. Why? It's a question you have to sit with. The problem is that you and I live lives driven by busyness and noise. So that it is all too easy to crowd out the silence required to ask that question. Why were people so troubled by Jesus in the Gospels... And I am largely untroubled by him. Following Jesus costs you something in a variety of ways, and in ways that I largely cannot dictate to you. Because I'm not Jesus, I can tell you what he said. But in the particularities of your own life, it is required that each and every one of his people lean in and listen to the voice of the Spirit. That Jesus might speak to us the way that he spoke to the rich young ruler, for example, when he asked that young man to sell everything that he had. I can tell you that Jesus would have you turn your cheek to forgive those who would do wrong to you. But I don't know their names. You do. And so you have to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit whisper that name to you and tell you, you ought to forgive You can't come to the end of the book of Acts, though, and think Jesus is a sort of life accessory to hang on to the outline of your own life. He radically reorders everything, he changes Paul's life, he changes his name, he changes his profession. He changes his understanding of the scriptures. And Paul ends up in chains at the end of Acts chapter 28, at the end of the book of Acts. And there's no indication that Paul is asking, oh no, what have I done? He seems to believe that he has found himself precisely where God wants him to be. And so he is untroubled by where he is. It is worth asking and reflecting later, maybe. When was the last time that I can put my finger on something and say, following Jesus cost me this? What is also not required is for the people of God to be their own self-directed martyrs. To flagellate themselves and to produce for themselves a kind of suffering so that they feel like they are in line with the continuity of the church's story. Because when you do that in pursuit of this feeling of virtue, you are again moving Jesus out of the center of your story, ...and moving yourself back in. Again, what is required... ...is that you stand before this Jesus... ...who at the end of the book of Acts is presented very clearly... ...as the risen Lord of heaven and earth... ...and ask Him what is required. And not submit to your own self-direction... ...but to His... But what you can be assured by is that it will cost you something. Now Paul here, as he finally arrives at Rome and he does what he does wherever he goes, he speaks to his brothers and sisters of Israel. He speaks to the people of the synagogues and he expounds for them why Israel's scriptures clearly point to Jesus. And the response is mixed. Some people turn away and do not believe. And other people do believe. And what you should expect in the context of your own life is something very similar. You should expect that not everybody receives the good news of Jesus as any kind of good news for themselves. One of the most frequently cited passages of the Old Testament in the New Testament is this passage from Isaiah chapter 6. God commissions Isaiah to be this prophetic voice to Israel. He has this incredible vision of, of the Lord, seated high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple the temple, he is seeing this vision of God's unbridled majesty and he has to be cleansed by the cold to have his mouth even able to speak the words of God so that he doesn't die in the presence of God and he's cleansed and he volunteers to go and speak for God and the message that God gives him is this one that's quoted for you. And what he announces is the blindness and the deafness of Israel. As judgment. And Paul will quote it here. The Gospels will quote it. Jesus will quote this passage to explain why it is that so many people reject him. And the, the story does not end as some sort of closing a, of the door on Israel. What ends The emphasized note at the end is the opening of the door to the Gentiles. Everywhere that Paul goes, he experiences this phenomenon. That the people of Israel, the Jewish people, many of them reject it. Some accept it. And then he goes and speaks to the Gentiles. And many of them reject it. And some accept it. And Paul has no control over those groups. Which should be an encouraging thing for you and I to notice because I feel pretty sure that Paul is probably a better speaker on these matters than me. And if Paul himself, everywhere he goes, extends the invitation to both Jew and Gentile and experiences this mixed response, what should I expect as somebody who is definitely not Paul? Probably a mixed response. And we ought not to be surprised or be confused by what we are seeing. But instead, we ought to be a people of prayer. That God would do the thing that is in the last line of this quotation. That he would heal those who are blind and deaf. I cannot promise you what you and I will receive, both individually and corporately, if we continue with this inheritance that we receive from the early church, the inheritance of mission. If you are desperately needy for people's acceptance, for being popular, for being in the majority, being on mission with Jesus Is not for you. That is not unique to this time and place. That is the story of every time and place. That if you go on mission with Jesus, you will experience this kind of response. Maybe yes, probably no. And so if your heart craves other people saying, you're so smart, I love what you're saying, this is beautiful, I want to do what you're doing, then being on mission with Jesus is really, really, really hard. Because it's just not going to sound like that, it's not going to feel like that. And it's so easy to crave those moments when they happen that you can slowly and subtly shift the mission from being on mission with Jesus to receiving that. And so when things become difficult when you're on mission with Jesus and you don't get that thing that you crave from other people, then you just stop. Let's look at where we live Let's look at our time and place. We are experiencing culturally what other parts of the world have experienced at other times, ahead of us and before us. It is, in the place and time that we live, less acceptable to follow Jesus, to accept Jesus' claims, it it feels more difficult to put Jesus on the table to say that he's the reigning Lord and contrary to every other possible reigning king. It feels less acceptable to say, I live my life this way because Jesus teaches me to do that thing. For many of you who have young children your children will grow up with fewer Christian friends than you did. And if you have grandchildren, your grandchildren are living in a spiritual environment that is entirely foreign to you. And it is not coming back. I do not care what media you watch or what person you elect. That world is gone. And this will be my children's experience. They will find it easier and easier and easier to believe Isaiah 6. Because they will experience more and more and more blindness and deafness. And what I have to believe, and what my children have to be discipled to believe... Is the proclaiming the good news of Jesus, despite the rejection, is the great joy and privilege of the church. And that whatever that might cost them, Jesus is worth that price. Here's what you see at the end. is Paul is in chains... For years and seems largely untroubled. You can read the book of Philippians. He is writing from prison and it's like the happiest of Paul's letters. He knows that things are bad, that circumstantially things are not good, and he seems fine with it all. We know that he suffered. In fact, we know the kind of death that he will die is a martyr's death. We know that it costs him everything. All of his final breaths. And yet here at the end of the book of Acts, we see the assurance that the beginning of the book of Acts told us the truth. That the words from Jesus' mouth have indeed raced to the edges of the earth. And because Jesus is who the church is proclaiming him, who Paul has believed, who the gospels tell us, who Jesus has said that he is, because all of it is true, Paul says you can throw as many chains on me as you want and throw me in house arrest for as long as you please. You can take my head, but you cannot take this truth. The risen Lord Jesus is worth Everything that I have, and he is my great joy, my great treasure that I cannot be robbed of. So, Paul ends in chains and he is free. He is a profoundly free man, so that he is able to say at the end of the book of Philippians that he has found the key. To be content in all circumstances. That in Christ. All things are possible. Though he even resides in prison. The clue. To Paul's confidence. Is in this little story. At the beginning of this chapter. Luke tells us this story, this little miracle, that Paul is on the island of Malta, he's trying to warm his hands by a fire, it's cold, it's rainy, he's just pulled himself out of a shipwreck, and in the heat of the fire, this serpent leaps out and bites him, and the islanders recognize what this serpent's shape does, he's going to die, it's going to kill him. And nothing happens. He's untroubled. You need to hear the shape of the biblical story come into focus in that moment. But at the very beginning of the story, God made a world in which he walks with his people in companionship and fellowship In the cool of the day. And these people. Are tempted away from him. By a craving to be their own king. And decide for themselves. What ought to be reckoned. As good and evil. And as they are in some sense. Ripped from his side. And the source of his his life. In the very moment. Where the great judge ought to deliver a verdict and end the story. He speaks a word of redemption. and says that there is coming a day when a son of the woman will step on the serpent who deceived them and will crush his head and rob him of all his power. That in the moment where everything ought to be taken away in the power of death and darkness, God says that he will undo what the serpent has whispered into the hearts of his people. And when Jesus comes, it is is carrying the burden of that commitment. So that as his foot falls outside of the tomb, he crushes the power of darkness, death, and sin forever so that always and everywhere when the serpent bites his people, it has been defamed and robbed of all of its venomous power. Jesus came to set his people free from the bite of the serpent and to destroy all the works of the kingdom of darkness. So Paul is not afraid when the snake hangs from his hand, and he is not afraid when the chains hang from his wrist. Because everything that would be arrayed against him has now been defeated by the one who is emperor over the emperor of Rome. That the King Jesus who has sent him on mission has not stayed behind in Jerusalem, but has instead ascended to the right hand of the Father and is yet reigning over him in his circumstances as he is, no matter what may face him. Paul is able to endure and the church survives and flourishes because Jesus is the snake-crushing king over heaven and earth. And if you and I are looking for a place to come once a week for a spiritual accessory to hang on the edges of the branches of our life to sort of complete the picture of a nice life in suburban America. That is not what Jesus is about. Jesus is coming to radically mess with your life and set his throne up in the middle of your own household in the middle of your own heart and deliver you into a kind of freedom that cannot be taken away from you by Rome or poverty or opposition or anything or anyone else. Because when the king sets you free, Paul says, you are free indeed. And if the serpent yet would strike you and seek to destroy you, and would even take your life. It is Jesus's inconquerable life that is truly yours. So that the serpent will not win with you. If you are here today and you are leaning in to the end of the book of Acts and saying, But what happens next? The answer is, you and I are happening next. We are carrying the torch Outward and onward from mission. Paul has not forgotten to write the ending of the story. The ending of the story has not occurred yet. You are living in the ripple effects of the book of Acts. You don't get to read backwards the story of the book of Acts and say, Man, when that story ended, I wish I knew what happened. You are living in the end of that story. It is a story in which you have found yourself. You don't get to sit back as a passive observer. You are a participant. You and I are called as the church of Jesus Christ to keep going, to keep obeying what we read in Acts chapter 1, to go with him to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Folks, you live there. You are in the ends of the earth, and your life is as tied up in this story as our brother Paul's was. And I don't know what the shape of the narrative looks precisely for your life. I don't know if the story ends with you in prison or with your head off of your shoulders. But what I do know is that this Jesus that Paul saw with absolute clarity, who laid his claim on his life and set him free from the power of sin and death, that Jesus has not changed. He is that Jesus now and forever. And so when Jesus comes and leverages cost on your life. If you see him clearly, what you say is, you are so worth this. It's not even close. You can have all of my time. You have all my busyness, all my resources, all my respectability, all my plans for my life, all the vacations that I thought I would have. Just have the whole thing, all of it, the whole thing, because you are worth that. And he will liberate you into a life of freedom that you can find in no other place. If you come to the end of the book of Acts and you are leaning in to see what is next, you are in good company. We are all leaning in in precisely that way together. We are the people of the next chapters of Acts. This valley is the place where God is continuing to write the story. Your business, your neighborhood, your school are the following verses of Luke's story. and the thread of continuity, is the ascended King Jesus. Today, if you are here, and you are recognizing that you have lived in your life with your eyes on your belly button, your shoe tops, on yourself, living life, dictated by the burdens of your very busy schedule with no room for Jesus whatsoever, Jesus is standing before you, glorious and unconquerable, unmatched. Beloved, lift your eyes and look at Jesus and see how good he is. And know that what he wants for you is freedom. Don't turn from him or ignore him anymore. Run to him. If you're here today and you are feeling the weight of your own rule and reign and dissatisfaction has got you in its grips, the response for you is the same that Paul preached everywhere he went. Repent and believe. God does not ask you to tax yourself, to flagellate yourself, to punish yourself, and get right with him before you come home. He says to you, repent and believe and welcome home. This God is unmatchable and it is a joy to live in his story so that the ends of the earth might be our home and the place where God's glory is proclaimed until his glory fills this world as the waters cover the seas would you lean in with me and race towards that story let me pray for us father we thank you We thank you that you have been patient with people like us, that you have given us a role to play in the drama of your own glory, that we get to be little players, little participants in the thing that you are doing, and Father, I pray that you would help us We confess freely that there are many things that distract us and steal our affections and time and resources. And God, we pray that in all the midst of all the goodness of our lives, we would see you as the chief good. We know that the chief purpose of our life is that you would be glorified and that we might enjoy you forever. Help us to see that and to believe it. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be quick to repent, to turn around and to come home and to come to you as we are. We thank you that you take fickle, frail people like us and you welcome us home and you set us free. Make us ever more free in you, Lord Jesus that you would be worshiped and glorified. Amen.